Hey, welcome to Being Creative. My name is Rick Leaf, and as you know, I'm the host of this show where we explore the value of creativity through stories of successes and failures of individuals like us or not like us at all. Now, I've talked a big game about, you know, being uh, creative and uh, sharing failures, but uh, I'm going to have to actually walk the talk here today. So I am going to share one of my biggest failures in my career. Uh, It is going to involve one of the biggest confessions of one of the most embarrassing parts of my story. I hate to talk about it, but I'm going to lay it all out for you. So don't go anywhere. I'm glad you're here. All right. Well, you know, I produced this podcast because I want to explore stories of success. Yeah, of course. But I also want to explore failures in equal measure because successes are great and that's what we all hope for. But while we can be inspired by the accomplishments and successes of others, I know that we can all relate to failures and struggles, which is why I think it's too bad that we're more we're not more comfortable in sharing those parts. And uh, and I say all of that to build myself up. You know, I'm trying to give myself the the courage here to press on with sharing one of my biggest career failures ever, why it got there. But to to share that, I need to share one of the biggest kind of embarrassing parts of my history so that any of it will make sense. So jumping straight in here, okay? So I used to live in Winnipeg, Manitoba. And it's known for being the super creative city, which it is. And that's where I started my group, Tribe of One. Uh, That's where almost every album I've ever been part of happened. Um, Boy, everything. My TV show that I produced happened there. Based myself out of there for, for decades. But when I, right before I moved to Winnipeg, I'd... I was raised here, 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 I'm going to dive straight into the embarrassing part. Okay. Here's my confession. So I was raised in a super religious environment. Uh, the one of the most religious, uh, Canadian prairie towns. There was this massive Bible college in the town that my, my parents had gone to, uh, my grandfather taught at it. I mean, it was a super religious little town. My family, very religious. My grandparents had been part of starting this church that we all went to. So all my cousins and aunties and uncles, everybody went to this church. All super, okay, now, now, whatever. A lot of people have a, a story like that. For me, it was, you know, the fact that as a young adult, I continued on in that pursuit. And, uh, and so I, I had moved to Kelowna. I'd become part of this uh, church community as a young adult. And I was, you know, becoming a songwriter and, uh, and, and I got involved. It was a kind of a rock and roll thing called God Rock. And it was this like every week, uh, you know, getting into this downtown venue and, you know, three, four hundred people would show up and we would just play for three, four hours. And just musically speaking, it was a fantastic um, 
environment to learn how to perform, to learn how to play with other artists, other musicians, to learn uh, songwriting structure and arrangements and everything else. And, you know, uh, but whether I ever intended that to be a career, it just, like some of these things happen, it just sort of happened. You know, they, you start playing for three, 400 people, and then somebody comes from out of town, and then there were these conferences, like youth conferences. There'd be thousands of, of people coming from all over Western Canada, Western states, and, and you start playing at these events, and, and one thing leads to another. Somebody's from Seattle, and they're at this event that's happening in Vancouver, and they're just like, hey, I really liked your band. Why don't you come down to Seattle and play my conference? And... And the next thing you know, I have a <laughs> church-related career. Uh, and I say that like jokingly, laughingly, because if you know me at all, you would know what an uncomfortable um, environment that would be for me personally, for my lifestyle, for the language that I use, <laughs> for just the type of person I am. It was a very uncomfortable um bedfellow or whatever the the expression would be you know it wasn't really like lots of people just love church they love everything about it and it didn't really work for me but I was making money and we were selling thousands of cds and it was just a legit sort of uh I look back on it now and I'm just like wow like it we're gonna get into it but I was just like well it was so easy everything was so easy people knew me uh, they were buying my music. They liked my music. Uh, other people, they were started recording some of my songs. It was all really fun and successful. Anyways, I moved to Winnipeg and for a period of time kept kind of doing the same thing, just now based out of Winnipeg. And there came this one point where, uh, you know, we're playing... Uh, for 7,000, 5,000 people. I remember playing for uh, on a show down in Toronto called Free TV, and it was like live, uh, nationally broadcast show, um, all on religious networks. Um, but, you know, it was, it was just exploding going that way. And uh, anyways, at the same time, we're, we're living in Winnipeg. We're just trying to be a working band, playing pubs and clubs and bars and and getting on stage at two in the morning and, and tearing down and it's minus 30 degrees as you're packing your gear out in the backyard or back alley and, and taking it back home and it, you stink like smoke and everything else and you're trying to get up in the morning because you got little kids and just, uh, we're just trying to be a working band. Anyway, uh, I was setting up a tour this one year and uh, <clears throat> my he was the head, his name was Andrew, he's a friend of mine, he was the head of the little record company that, that we were part of, and he was also a musician and touring, and I, I phoned him up, I said, look, I'm going to set up a, an Eastern Canada tour, would you want to do it with me? And he said, no, I don't want to do conferences anymore. He was feeling, I think, much the same as I was. And he said, no, I don't want to, but he's like, you know what, I was reading an article in the Globe and Mail the other night, and uh, the guy was the arts and entertainment writer. He was supposed to be covering the Grammys. And he said, I don't want to talk about the Grammys. I want to talk about this house concert. Now, we're talking about, you know, back in around 1999, 2000, somewhere in that area. 
And uh, so this guy said, I, I want to talk about this writer said, I want to talk about this house concert I went to. It was super cool. Uh, There's like 30, 40 people in this house. We're just sitting around super informal. This uh, artist was just right there, acoustic guitar, telling stories about how they wrote the song and what the song was about. We were able to ask questions. It was super intimate and interactive. I loved it. That's what I wanted to do. So my friend Andrew said, I don't want to do conferences anymore. I want to do house concerts. And house concerts now, you know, in 2022 or whatever, notwithstanding the last two years of COVID not being able to get together, but, you know, lots of people, there's house concert circuits and it's a, but 22 years ago, there wasn't that many people. So I remember sending out these emails to the conference organizers who only knew Rick Leaf as the guy doing these conferences for thousands of people with a big band and whatever. And I'm saying, hi, my myself and Andrew, we want to come and do a house concert. And they're like, you want to do what? I'm like, yeah, just the two of us, acoustic guitars. Uh, we just like, and they're like, you want to play in a house? I'm like, yes, ideally. I want to play in a house and I want you to feed us, uh, put us up. Like, I also want you to like put us up and I want you to like feed us supper and breakfast in the morning. And, uh, you know, whatever it was, 500 bucks a night. I want you to pay me $500 to come play in your living room. And uh, I'm hoping, you know, I'm, it, it used to work out, you know, I was selling um, <clears throat> my partner's artwork along with CDs. So I'm always hoping, you know, maybe I'm going to make about $250 worth of sales. So it's going to be a $750 night for me. Um, and it's, there's not going to be any accommodation costs, not going to be any meal costs because they're covering all of that. So if I rent a car and get my plane ticket, uh, I could probably, so what I ended up doing was, you know, we started doing house concerts. I started doing house concerts and uh, it would be like seven, you could kind of guarantee on 750 bucks a night. I would set up because Canada's so big. Uh, I wouldn't want to drive anywhere. I would want to like set the tour up so that I could fly in on a Friday, play every night that weekend, play all, you know, every night the next week in that region and the next weekend and then come home. So you'd, you know, put together 10 nights of a tour. You'd be playing virtually every night that you were gone grossing about 750 bucks a night. So 7,000, some 7,500 bucks, let's say roughly with a plane ticket and a car rental as almost your only, my only expenses. And uh, I was living in Winnipeg where uh, cost of living was super cheap. Our house was so cheap, our rent. We were able to live as artists just starting out um, not comfortably and certainly not rolling in money, but we were able to do this. But here's where it, the failure, it was my perception on my audience and my career. And here I am in Winnipeg and I'm, I'm day to day, I'm hanging out with other artists like me, singer songwriters and bands and everybody. And we're just playing all these cool pubs and clubs, and we're just like being part of the cultural community. And then I would leave, I would jet out of the city, and I would go play for church people, because that's who knew me, uh, not in churches anymore, but in their homes, but still a conservative crowd, church crowd, religious crowd, the themes they would still want to hear would be related to all of that. And so I convinced myself 
that either this wasn't authentic or it was somehow lesser than what every other artist like me in Winnipeg and in Canada was doing. So I convinced myself I needed to abandon the career I had for the career I thought I needed. So what do you do? I'm part of a great music association, probably one of the best in the country, at least it was at the time. So I go to the head of the music association that I'm part of, the Provincial Music Association. I talked to the president and I'm like, look, I just basically gave him a condensed version of what I just told you. And I'm like, what should I do to advance my career? How do I do it? And he gave me this advice. And he said, okay, well, pick an artist in Canada that you think is at your level or a little bit ahead of you. Go to their website, find out where they're touring, look at all of the venues of, that they're booked at for their tours. You know that if your music is a little bit like their music, uh, that venue is probably going to be the right kind of a place for you to be playing at. If they're booking the person who's at your level or just a little bit above you, then you're in the ballpark. You should be able to negotiate to go do that. And yeah, so do that. And that's how you're going to take a great step. And I remember walking out of there and I don't know what that advice sounds like to you listening. Uh, I remember thinking, wow, that's really great. That makes a lot of sense. So there was a band out of Winnipeg called the Whale and Jennies that had just broken up, but they were like a Juno award-winning uh, trio, really good songwriters and beautiful music. And they'd, I think, split up, or no, maybe they hadn't split up. Kara Luft was one of the founders, I believe, and she had left the band at that time, maybe a year before. And so I thought, okay, Kara Luft, she's part of the Whalen Jennings, head of me, kind of in notoriety and whatever, but definitely I felt like we were in the same ballpark, so I went to her website, I looked at her tour, and it was a, an East Coast tour. And I saw all of these places where she had played. And so I made the list, and I got online, and I found out all of their contact information. I contacted all of them. And as best I could, I set up a tour in the, um, the maritime region of Canada, the East Coast of Canada. I set up the worst tour I have ever set up in my life. I've never lost money on a tour ever. I've never actually got money from any art uh, organization, any grant organization. I've never had corporate sponsorship or anything like that. I've always made money by just being a fairly, like just hustling, not even being very good at business. But that tour, if I made 50 bucks, if I made $100, after paying everything, that would be it. It was the worst tour, and here's why. I'm not Kara Luft. Like, for all I know, the Waylon Jennings played uh, the East Coast tour once or twice a year for five years. Literally, like, I don't know anything about the story. But uh, if, if this idea that because it worked for somebody else, it will work for you, it's like it just... Nobody knew me in these venues, except in these towns and communities, whatever. So, of course, nobody's coming out. I remember this one night uh, in St. John, uh, New Brunswick. I actually had a great connection. I, I 
played at a church for hundreds of people, had sold, you know, tons of uh, music, made tons of money. They were one of the groups that had transitioned to hosting house concerts. I could always guarantee on 40 or 50, 60 people packing out a house, uh, selling tons of money, being fed great movie. I great food and put up in a great room and we were drinking great scotch after the show was over. I mean, everything about it was perfect. And I had abandoned all of that to go play at this coffee shop. And it was probably winter and it was a pretty miserable stormy night. So I drive here. I've flown from Winnipeg to Toronto, from Toronto to Halifax. I've got the car. I mean, it's taken me however much, you know, how many days and away from my family and all the time to, to get out there and all of the expense. And I'm showing up in this crappy weather with my guitar, with my stuff to like come do the best show possible. And literally the door, the front door wasn't even closed behind me yet. And the, the manager looked over, the owner looked over and said, if nobody shows up tonight, you know, we're, we're closing early. I was like, not even a hello. Not even a, hey, Rick, you've traveled thousands of kilometers. Welcome to whatever the stupid coffee shop's name is. No, man, they couldn't give a crap about me or what it had taken to get there. And I was like looking around for the posters that I had sent. None of them were up. They didn't lift a finger to help me promote a show in their own venue. Where, as opposed to, you know, say that church crowd that would have done that, they would have taken care of anything. All they would have to have done probably is like on Sunday morning said, hey, by the way, Rick Leaf's coming to town. He's doing a house concert on uh, Friday nights, 20 bucks each, you know, limit of 50 people, you know, cram into the house. Um, I abandoned a great thing for an absolute trash thing. And every night of that tour was basically like that. Now, why? That is so important. And I look back and I will never forget that. Um, I took the advice of the president of one of the best music associations in the country. Now, was that bad advice? For me, yes, it was the worst. That doesn't mean that for somebody else, that advice wouldn't work great. But that's the idea that there is no formula in a creative life that works the same for everybody else. I just two days ago watched another uh, short webinar, pre-recorded webinar from the guy that does Sam Cart. Um, like this online store, and he's got this one page uh, sales page funnel, whatever, uh, that he's trying to sell you. And I don't know why I watched it. It just sounded, it, something about the ad intrigued me, you know, and I, I watched it and it was just like, yeah, it's the same thing though. It's like, this worked for me, this worked for these other three guys. I've had hundreds or thousands of people go through it. And he tells me the story, like he shows three people. And that's like, but this idea of online coaching and, and, uh, and consulting, it so often comes down to, hey, this is what I did. And this is the results I got. So you do this. And well, you know, I can't promise that you're going to get the same results, but I'm going to infer that you will. 
And it doesn't work like that. A creative career, a creative life doesn't work that way. It's not about a formula. Um, you know what? In a creative life, the way I look at it, it's like, you know, things add up differently. I know that you math geniuses out there, you understand these formulas. I understand how, well, I, in theory, I understand why people would like math. I love that somebody would say, what are the components how do I put them together? And how do I definitively and absolutely know that I have the correct answer? I understand why that would appeal to some people's minds. It's not my mind. It's not the way I look uh, at the world. And it's not actually the result I'm looking for. I'm looking for how does my creative capital, my talents and gifts and abilities and experience and education, how does it apply to this situation right now? And not only will I not approach problem solving in this situation differently than you, I will probably approach this situation differently than I did a year ago or five years ago or 20 years ago. I remember touring with Andrew actually at one point he said something about, um, we were just talking about life back home and our partners, whatever. And he said, oh, I'm so glad, I'm so lucky that I have a partner who uh, will let me become somebody I've never been before. And I, at the time, I remember just thinking, whoa, wait, what? I had to think about it. And then I was like, well, duh, think about it. If you're going to be with somebody for five years or 10 years or 50 years, you better damn well hope they're going to be like somebody that they've never been before. How stupid would that be if your goal is you know, this is who you are when I met you. And 10 years later, I don't want you to have any new hobbies and any new interests. I don't want you to have any new subjects you want to talk about or any new books you want to read or movies that you want to watch. Like, it, it's absurd. And yet, we approach so many things in our life like that, whether it's institutions or organizations. And, and here's the deal that I've learned um, along the way, because along the way, I've, I've worked with lots of different organizations from the Foreign Affairs Department of Canada, uh, part of an event with the United Nations. I did a project with UNESCO, uh, War Child Canada, the Red Cross, lots of religious organizations, as you can imagine, over the years. Um, lots of arts organizations like Canada Council for the Arts and Factor and, you know, Manitoba Film and Sound. Lots of different agencies and organizations. And here's one of the things it took me a long time to realize what I'm trying to share with you. I, I believed that somehow I was missing out. Here I am over in my little corner of the world brokering. I did not mean to have the career that I ended up having. It was a total accident, wasn't even the best fit, but it just fell into my lap and I was running with it. And then I was able to broker that into like doing house concerts that were making me infinitely more money. You know, if you play in Winnipeg, you're lucky if you're getting, you're probably getting two beers <laughs> per band member. 
I seem to remember that was like a standard sort of here. You get two drinks each. That's what we're paying you. And bring, by the way, bring out all of your friends. And we're going to like delay you from getting on stage for an hour after we told you we're going to play. So that your friends will show up at 930 because they think you're going to play at 10. But we're not going to let you get on until 1130 so that your friends sit there and drink for two hours. And for all of this effort and everything that you put into it, we'll give you two beers each. That was, seemed to be pretty standard. So here I was, I had this, or, you know, I had this little career that was functioning, that was supporting me and my family, and we were able to live in it, and I had lots of freedom to do lots of other things. If I could do it over again, I would not, you know, toss that little career into the trash can the way I did, because I recognize right now, man, if you have a way to pay the bills and to support yourself and live, man, whatever you know, you need to do to do that. That's an honorable thing to like scratch together uh, a career out of nothing. To make something out of nothing, that's creative. That's amazing. So I had convinced myself though, my perception was I was missing out or I didn't have this legit career because I wasn't playing in pubs and clubs. And when I went and did that, I realized that's miserable. And not only that, the audiences are no different. Like, of course, you know, on some surface area, these people, you know, swear more than these people, or at least they swear more than these people in public, uh, or they drink more or less or, or whatever. They have a... But really, people are people. You find people anywhere who are really energized and excited by what it is that you're creating, singing, painting, performing, be thankful for that. That's a gift. That's amazing. And so I, here I was, I, I really, I really failed to see what I had. And not only that, I convinced myself that the people in charge of these organizations like the music association or the arts councils or whatever, knew more than me about what was best for me in my career. And they didn't. In fact, I have learned a lot of times the people in charge of these organizations, they could be arts organizations or education organizations. You would think, well, these are the smartest, brightest, most innovative and creative minds that are in charge. Clearly, that's why they would have risen to the top, right? Often, if you have any experience at all, you realize, no, these are like the managers. They're great at managing systems. They're great at managing behavior. They're, they're great at managing book um, sheets, you know, the, the ledgers and, and whatever. But they're not the innovative, creative thinkers. Lots of times they're the managers who have risen because they are ideally suited for managing the systems and the organizations of a bygone era, of the status quo, of something that worked maybe five, 10 years ago. That's one of the things that blew my mind about being in the, in the cultural arts and cultural industry. Um, artists are constantly innovating. Creativity leads to innovation. And so if you're in a creative industry, there's just by nature gonna be innovation all around you. You, you just have that kind of energy. And I remember, you know, I went to apply for a, an, a grant, a recording grant. 
And this is at the point, man, people are, are downloading music, they're streaming music. And I remember on the application, it was like, how many, how many CDs have you sold you know, in the last whatever, how many tapes have you sold? It was some really outdated metric. It was like, how many um, music stores is your music being distributed by? And it's like, this was at a time like Sam the Record Man shut down, A&B Sound shut down, uh, Blockbusters were shutting down. And here in the grant applications for the arts organizations who you would think would have their finger on the pulse of innovation and creativity and where we're going, <laughs> they were still using uh, metrics for qualitating success on a 10 or 20 year old model, which no longer even existed. So that to me is such an important thing. We can set ourselves up for failure if we believe that the people in charge of the way that things used to be done or have always been done this way are the are the ones who hold the keys to opening the kingdom you know the the gates to the great beyond and all that we hope to achieve and experience in this life they're not you know we we need we absolutely have to stop looking for formulas and these equations, they're going to lead us, you know, logically to some conclusion because it worked that way for somebody else. You and I, whatever you happen to be doing, I say this all the time when I'm in schools, you just need to figure out how it works for you. If you're a teacher or if you're an administrator in a school or, or whatever your situation happens to be, you don't need to figure out how this particular uh, thing works for the class across the hall or the people upstairs or downstairs. What works for you and what's going to work for you is going to be tapping into your unique gifts. Your, the talents that you have uh, developed over the years, the experiences that you've had, you have a specific way of looking at the world, at your problems. And we are most successful when we trust ourselves. And yeah, you need a safe and supportive environment to do that. I remember, oh, this was a, a number of years ago, I was doing a pro D session for high school teachers, and we were talking about slam poetry. And it was pretty evenly uh, split in the room. Some of the teachers were just like, this sounds fantastic. Like, a couple of them said, poetry is my least favorite unit that I have to teach. I th this really gets me excited. We had written and performed in this pro D session so that the teachers, I had just said, I'm gonna just, let's do the exactly the first lesson that I do with classes, no matter how old they are. Let's just do it here together and we'll walk through the process and, and discuss it. So they had done it. They really had a handle on it. And a couple of them are just like, you know what? Uh, I'm excited. Now I'm excited for the poetry um, unit because I'm gonna incorporate this and I think it's gonna be an absolute uh, game changer. There were other teachers who were super resistant to it. And they were like, <clears throat> you know what? You get one chance. 
and, and I remember somebody saying, you know, I, I don't got time to experiment with something that might not work because then I'm going to get called in for my, you know, evaluation. And if they haven't learned whatever the objectives are or whatever the, the metric for, you know, evaluating the success of teaching that unit, if they, if it didn't work out, they were like going to have the consequence <clears throat> of getting a bad review. And for them, that risk was way too high and they weren't going to do it. And do you know what? I, I, I At the time, I was probably looking for a 100% buy-in. Right now, if I was to do that session over again, I'd be like, trust your gut. Trust your gut. If you guys are excited about doing it, there's something about what we've just done with slam poetry that is tying into your creative capital. It works for you, or you can see how it could work for you. But you over here... You went through the same, you know, <clears throat> uh, example. We did the same workshop. We workshopped it out. You tried it, and you are left with that feeling like, no, this isn't going to work for me. Trust that. There is no one-size-fits-all, not for any of us. And I think that's more than ever what we need in this time of exponential change in industries uh, with all of us as individuals, with whether it's COVID or anything else in the last couple of years that we've been trying to deal with and manage different ways of working, whether it's remotely, whether it's with different technology that we never did, some people have really risen up. The, the most unexpected people, I'm, I'm not sure if we were to talk, you, you would have stories like this too. I'm meeting some people, man, they're in their like 60s, 70s. You, you would think, you know, a lot of people are like, oh, I can't even figure out how to use the remote on my TV. You know, I'm an old dog. You can't teach me any new tricks. Uh, you'd expect that kind of, you know, perspective from somebody in their 60s or 70s, and, and some of them are, but some of them are like, you know what? I figured out how to use Zoom. I figured out how to use, you know, get my backdrop. I got this fancy backdrop, and they're, you know, creating slides for their presentations, and they're, they're super excited because they're learning, uh, but more than anything else, they're tapping into their creative capital, their potential. And if you and I can do that, man, it's the difference between hope and optimism. Hope really grounds us in our own potential and in the, the what we believe we are capable of doing and being and becoming. Optimism, I feel, is, is a very outward-focused um, thing. You're, you're optimistic based on somebody else in charge or somebody else doing something for you, somebody else solving your problems. And I think if you think back to meetings that you've been in, the most frustrating meetings that you've been in so many times, doesn't it come down to one side of the room is really advocating for ideas and innovation that are coming out of the hope that they have for problem solving um, that's based in their own creative capital and, and that of those that are around them. And the people who are really resistant to innovative uh, change and ideas and experiments 
are the ones who are like, no, I don't want to be part of this. I want somebody else, you know, the, the president of the organization, the head, the principal, or the superintendent, or the minister of education, or, or so, we want someone else to solve our problems. And ultimately, I don't know if you've ever met anybody who that actually works for. So that was my story of my biggest failure. Uh, I never did that again. Uh, I realized that was terrible. <laughs> uh, that was a terrible experience. Um, <clears throat> it didn't work for me. I realized I horribly um, on that tour, I, I remember driving down the road from one crappy gig to the next, just sitting in silence going, I've never put together such a terrible tour. How did this happen? And I just, it was very, it was a very honest moment with myself. And I was like, I can't keep doing this. I have to have the confidence in myself to know that if I'm doing something that I love and I'm good at, and it's positively impacting other people, and it's got it's checking off those practical boxes as well. I need to be able to feed my family. I need to be able to pay my bills. I need to be able to, you know, live life. Um, but I'm always looking for something that's a bit more than that as well. And you know what? When I, uh, not getting into it now, but, you know, my <clears throat> partner and I, we sold our house in Winnipeg and we took a bunch of the money from the sale of that house. So we spent a year traveling around the world with our kids. And I'll tell you about that sometime. Wrote a book about it called Four Homeless Millionaires, how one family found riches by leaving everything behind. But what happened was when I came back from that year off, I realized I am going to actually have to start right from scratch. Uh, the house concert circuit was flooded in many ways. There was tons of people doing it around 2011, 2012. Um, the uh, smaller venues in communities across Canada had all stopped promoting uh, live original music. It was obviously a big cultural shift. Every promoter that I worked with but one was no longer in the industry, no longer working it. So when I came back from this year off, it wasn't like I need to work extra hard to get back on the circuit and get back into it. It didn't exist. And I ended up in schools because schools still existed and uh, I wasn't set up. The, it was This was what I do now and what I've done for the last 12 years. Um, it was no more intentional at the at the outset than what happened to me in Kelowna or what happened to me in Winnipeg. I just followed my gut, and I I do remember <laughs> um, <laughs> there was one school, a French immersion school I'd gone to a couple of years in a row, and I'd been teaching uh, slam poetry to their to the school, and they booked me for the third year in a row. And it was a Thursday afternoon. On Monday, I was going to be starting, and I had to fly up to where this was. It was in northern Canada. And uh, 
I phoned the principal on Thursday afternoon just to say, hey, I got my flight booked on Sunday. I'm going to be there. I got my car rented, so I'll be there Monday morning. Just want to make sure everything was good to go. We still want to do slam poetry? And the principal is like, oh, I don't know. What else do you do? Well, you know, I do songwriting. and I do, you know, video projects and multimedia and whatever. And she thought about it for like five seconds and said, could you write a song and make a video that would involve all 360 students in the school. And I'm just like, I need to make rent, right? I'm just like, oh yeah, sure, no problem. I'll just bring all my stuff with me. I didn't think it through. I didn't have a plan or anything. And I, I remember it never even dawned on me. I wasn't even nervous because it didn't even dawn on me what I had just said that I would do. And I remember parking my car, grabbing my guitar and my bag of cameras and stuff and walking up to the school on Monday morning. And then all of a sudden, all these kids were like passing me going into the front doors. And all of a sudden I was looking around going, wait, what did I say I was going to do? I'm writing a song this week with 360 students and I'm making a video. How am I doing that? Too late, right? Too late to worry about it. Just time to roll up the uh, the creative sleeves, so to speak, and get down to business, which is what I did. And that's what I've done for the last 12 years more than anything else, because uh, and I'll tell you all about it in another podcast. But that accidentally really opened up the door to play to every single gift and talent and ability and education and experience that I've ever had, I could tell you how much I, I charge, exactly how I do it. Uh, I could give you my business model entirely and you could never steal it. One person could never steal it because it is so uniquely tailored to me because I am not teaching it to any other musician or artist or whatever. Nobody I know. I know lots of songwriters, but they couldn't do what this project does. I know lots of motivational speakers, but they couldn't do what this project does. I know lots of coaches and consultants, but they couldn't do what this does because this is really just played to me. And so whatever your thing is, whoever you are, um, play to your gifts and, and, and don't have any expectation that what you need to do is going to figure it out for anybody else. I'm tracking down some of the most unique and interesting stories and people I can to interview for this podcast because I have met farmers and I've met teachers. I've met photographers. I've met a lot of different people, business people, community developers, some politicians who approached their thing in such a creative way, it's super inspiring to me whether I know anything about their industry or organization or not. So I'm glad you listened. Cre- being creative, it's way more than a, a podcast for me. It's a mindset. It's, it's a lifestyle and one that produces an energy and empowers resilience. Uh, resiliency and the confidence to face the challenges that life throws at me. That's what I want to share with you because that creative uh, mindset, it creates a momentum uh, that takes us from one 
success or failure to the next, but it helps us gain confidence to face whatever's around the corner. So I hope you were inspired. I hope you were able to relate. Please don't hold my confession against me. I do that for myself. Feel free to leave a comment or ask a question. And remember, you are capable of infinitely more than you have ever given yourself credit for. So until next time.